Morning, church. It is great, great, great to see young leaders stepping forward and um, instead of saying, oh, I can't do that, don't ask me to do that, you know, stepping into a space and doing that, you know, and leading for the very first time, both of those guys, David's never led us in family prayer before, you know, and Nate's never led us in communion before, and they both did a really fine job, so I really want to appreciate both of you. So, really encouraging to see young leaders do that. So, um, this morning, I want to uh, talk a little bit. Actually, I'm setting the stage for our Easter services. I want to tell you a little bit about that. This year, we're trying to be a little bit more intentional and in trying to um, lead us all into the Easter weekend services. And so, today's and next week's sermon are both pointing us toward Easter and talking about how, why Easter matters, why we're we, we make such a big deal of it. Um, today at our resource table over there, we're featuring a book by D.A. Carson called Scandalous, The Cross and the Resurrection of Jesus. And it's really, really good. And he has this one particular chapter that I've really enjoyed. I've read it a couple of times, and I used it a little bit to preach from one time. And one of them is talking about the, ir- the ironies of the cross. The man who is mocked as king is really the king. The man who is utterly powerless is, utterly, is absolutely powerful. The man who can't save himself saves others. And the man who cries out in despair trusts God. You know, and they're just really a great, great chapter. And so the book is really a good book. You can pick it up over there. As well, as Pastor Steve has written another um, a devotional for the week of Passion Week, starting on Monday through. And so that's over there as well. Both of them have a suggested donation. I think this is five and this is ten, and you can get them over there at the resource table after the service. Um, And then uh, leading up to that week on Good Friday, you know, we've traditionally had a Good Friday service, but this year it's going to be dramatically different. Um, We uh, Last year, I had stumbled across something, and I asked Jared about it, and Jared was excited that I even knew about it, so he encouraged me to think about it. And so we're going to be doing a tenebrae service. It's not something we've ever done before. You might not have ever heard of it before. It's more liturgical in its background, going back to the medieval times. And, um, and it's a combination of readings and music, and it traces the story of Christ's final hours um, using those readings, periods of silence, um, to help us ponder the depth of Christ's suffering and, and his death that night. And then the next morning, Saturday morning, we've set aside the whole campus in the morning for a period of solitude and meditation. For anyone who wants to come and, and just be here, we're gonna, we'll have tables and chairs set up, and you can just be here and be quiet, you know, with just you and the Lord, with time to read, time to contemplate, and to focus on the weekend, on the events of the crucifixion, and then on the coming events of the resurrection. And we'll have some guided readings if you'd like that to be able to read along. Or else you can just bring your Bible and do it for yourself. Either way is fine. It'll be Saturday morning. And then Easter Sunday morning, obviously, the focus is on the hope of resurrection. And all that was accomplished when Christ rose from the grave that day. One of our elders, Scott Brubaker, he's going to be sharing his testimony that morning. And so we're looking toward a great, great service that day. And really... You know, and, and it's one of those few times, we've said this before, it's one of those few times that if you invite somebody to an Easter service, the likelihood of them saying yes is pretty good. The thing that's missing in that so often is the invite. They're not invited, so they, they don't come. 
So that's one good time that you might want to invite somebody out for them to be here, and they would actually come and we'd be able to do our very best to represent the gospel well and to represent what Easter is about as well, and just a great opportunity for you. After the service that day is our potluck meal, and we've been doing that for several years, and I know back at the back corner, Michelle and Nikki are going to be signing up, and so we just need to know who's coming so we make sure we have enough food. We usually do 100, 120 people at that, and it's just going to be a potluck. So we just want you to sign up so we don't have all pineapple stuffing, which is nothing wrong with that, and some ham. You know, that'd be fine, you know. And no one wants too many green beans, and there's no kale. It's a no-kale church, all right? <laughs> it's a no-kale church. We don't, that's bad. It's a result of the fall. Don't do that. <laughs> we do not celebrate the result of the fall on Easter Sunday. Okay. So go back there and sign up for the Easter potluck and just let us know what you're bringing so we have enough food, all right? All right. Today, open up your Bibles to Genesis 3, all right? We're going to be there a little bit, and, and it's going to set the stage for where we're going. But today our sermon is really intended to try and help us to understand why Easter, why the resurrection is such a big deal. You know, why is it that it's, it's one of two days in the church, at least in our church, that we set aside to really, really make a big deal of it? Why is it that people, some people only come to church two days out of the year, Christmas and Easter? Why is this one of them, right? And so today we want to begin to set the stage for that so we can begin to understand that a little bit better and think about it and help our hearts and our minds be really geared toward Easter service. So I want to start in, in, um, in Genesis, and Genesis, Genesis records the creation of man and how God created man in his own image. That's in Genesis one twenty-seven. But then in Genesis 3, this thing happens. Satan, Lucifer, um, the devil, in his great, great hate for God's creation, he steps in to try and mar and destroy or corrupt God's creation. Here he is. He was created as one of the most beautiful creatures ever created. If you read about it in Ezekiel 28 or Isaiah 14, it reads about that here is this one named Lucifer. Uh, or the more, you know, is, he's spoken of as light. He's spoken of as beautiful. But he got caught up in his own beauty. And, and in Isaiah 20, 14, it, it says that he wants to be like the Most High. He wants to be like God. And in that, he fell. And God speaks about how he humbled him. And he removed him from that place of prominence among the angels. And so Satan has a great, great hate for God and the things of God. And so now here has God. He has created this world in perfect, you know, it's in perfection. And then he creates these two beings And he says that he's placed his image in them. Now, you think about that. If you want to be like God, and he has not let you do that, but then he said, but these two, these two have my image in them. I've placed my image in them. That these two must be supremely special to God. You know, so the old saying is, if you you want to love me, love my kids, you know, and probably this, the flip side of that is true as well. If you want to hate me or hurt me, hurt my kids. And so here is the father. He has these two creations that he's made, this man and this woman. 
And here enters Satan into the equation. So in Genesis 3, chapter 1, I mean verse 1, let's start right there and we'll read through here a little bit. Now the, Satan, now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Indeed, has God said, You shall not eat from any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, From the tree... From the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat, but from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God said, You shall not eat of it or touch it lest you die. And the serpent said to the woman, You shall not surely die. For God knows that in the day you eat, your eyes will be opened and you will be, look what he says, the very thing he wanted, he dangles in front of Adam and Eve. And he goes, For you will be like God if you do that. knowing good and evil. And the woman saw that the tree was good for food and and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was desirable to make one wise. She took from it and ate and she gave also to her husband who was with her and he ate. And then the eyes of of both of them were opened and they knew that they were naked and they were sewed fig leaves together and they made themselves loin coverings. So here we have it. Satan has attacked the creation, and by deceiving them and using the same things that tempted his heart, he used to tempt their hearts, and they fell. He said, you will be like God. And God didn't want competition. He didn't want you to be that way. What's he holding back from you? What is he keeping from you by telling you not to eat of that tree? And the serpent says this, and in eating the fruit, it'll open your eyes. Think of all the things you'll understand better. And they finally see the world as it really is. You'll see good and evil. There's one pastor who says, they do come to know good and evil, but that knowledge brings them neither God's power, nor his wisdom, nor his ability to love. Knowledge without corresponding maturity brings perversion. Humanity is not equipped for this knowledge, and so it brings them shame, fear, and pain. They come to know good by abandoning it. They come to know evil by committing it for the first time in human history. Isn't that a great statement? They come to know good by abandoning it, and they gain the knowledge of evil by committing it. Really, really strong statement. What they didn't understand that was instead of becoming like God, all-knowing, all-powerful, not answering to anyone without limits, they become separated from God now. They didn't understand that their desire to be like God would bring consequences. Dr. Constable, one of my seminary professors, in his notes he says, However, she, speaking of Eve, she became less like God because she was no longer innocent of her sin. Her relationship with God suffered. And those consequences that, that loss of, of relationship were huge. First of all, like I said a moment ago, they became like God. Uh, they did not become like God. They became separated by God. And that's what sin does. It separates. Initially, and most importantly, it separated man, Adam and Eve, from God. Genesis 3.23, if you want to go there, Genesis 3.23 says, therefore, the, the Lord God sent them out of the Garden of Eden to cultivate the ground which, was, which he was taken from. So he drove the man out. 
and at the east, east of the Garden of Eden, and he stationed cherubim and flaming sword there in every direction to guard the way to the tree of life. So here was man, Adam and Eve, and they'd been in a relationship. We even referenced this just recently. They'd been in a relationship where they could hear him in the garden, where they, they spoke to him and they could hear him. I don't know if he, like, if he was using words like I'm using, if he had an accent like I have. I don't know if he was speaking English or Hebrew or what he was speaking, but they understood each other and they went back and forth. They had a relationship But now that relationship had been broken and they were separated from God. They were outside of that garden. Sin always separates. But man was also separated from one another because now Adam and Eve, they had known an intimacy that had been ruined by sin. The very first thing they did when God comes and begins to ask them what happened later on in chapter 3 is they blame each other. She told me to do it. It was his fault. The serpent told me to do it. And any time conflict enters into a relationship, it's difficult. It's hard to resolve it. And more often than not, many don't resolve it. And so here it is. The first thing they did was they began to accuse and to blame. And that friction that they had never, ever known before, they experienced it now. And friction and conflict is common in our relationships now. It separates us. Sin brought other damage to humankind. Adam and Eve knelt at shame and guilt. You see that there? We just read that in in verses uh, verses 7 or 8, wherever we were just there a moment ago. it, It brought shame and guilt. The image of God in mankind was now marred by that sin. It was broken. It had been damaged as a result of the behaviors that we see and resulting in all the behaviors that we see in our world. Instead of goodness and beauty and harmony, which had been the initial creation, there is now no shortage of hate and malice and violence and bigotry and perversion. Sin also introduced corruption to all creation. Before their sin, the bodies of Adam and Eve knew no disease. But sin changed that. And after the sin, their bodies immediately began to suffer from the aging process that eventually decays our abilities and death. In in other words, Adam and Eve would have never experienced death before sin. But now all mankind experiences death. The devil told Eve in in chapter 3, verse 4, You will not surely die. God didn't mean that. He can't really do that. You will not surely die. Knowing full well that God meant exactly what he said and that their sin would result in death and separation. Again, quoting Dr. Constable, he said, The first doctrine Satan denied in Scripture was that, was that sin results in death or separation from God. We could say the doctrine that God will not punish sin. And this is still the truth that he tries the hardest to get people to disbelieve. Don't worry about this. There's not anything after you die. There's not any punishment that you're eternally going to suffer. You're never going to be judged for this. You can get away with this. People get away with this all the time. It'll be okay. No one's going to hold you into account for what you do. He says that to us all the time. And enough people believe it that they try it all the time. Do they not? Do we not? Let's not talk about them. Let's talk about us. Do we not, all the time, attempt it? 
But this is the truth, though. It is true that people do die. People do get sick. But that only happens because of sin. Sin is the cause of sickness and death. And all the things that go wrong in our world, that happens because of sin. It is the unraveling of the initial goodness and perfection of God's creation in the garden that was corrupted by man's sin. And so when people look at different cultures and they see how corrupt they get, the further away that mankind gets from this, the more corrupted and evil they become. It doesn't even have to mean that they are all reading this, but it's because there are other people in the world who have read it. There are other people in the world who do believe it, who do practice it, and that common grace spills over into the lives of others. There's a standard that people have based upon this word. But the more and more and more that this word is put away and forgotten about and not related to, not referred to, the more and more and more evil and sin corrupts all the faster. And you've heard it said that in our nation when they took the the Bibles out of school, well, I don't know if it was that exact moment, but when we began to say that we don't need that, when we don't need this, that this is not true, we begin to drift further and further away. And the corruption begins to happen faster and faster and faster. Until now, if there's a baby born out of the womb and we really don't want it, we can just let it die. Because that's what those bills are that they're talking about. And if we miss the, ado- if we miss the abortion, it's born alive, we can still kill it. That is the drift from this word and this truth. That is the decay of sin coming to full bloom in any culture. Before there, was, before there was sin in the world, no one died, nothing had to die, nothing had decay. But Romans 6.23 says, but the wages, the things that come about because of sin, the wages of sin is death. In other words, it's just like any, it's like, so if I'm going to go out and work all day long, then I expect some pay at the end of the day. And it says, if you are going to sin, what you get paid for that sin is death, separation from God, separation from each other, a brokenness in your life and in the world and in all creation that continues to wither creation. Romans 5.12 says it like this, when Adam sinned, Sin entered the entire human race. His sin spread death throughout all the world so that everything began to grow old and die, for all had sinned. James 1.5 says, These evil thoughts lead to evil actions and afterwards to the death penalty from God. You see, in all those verses, it's speaking, it's connecting these two points, sin and death. It's tying them together in such a way that they cannot be untied. And so ever since death entered in, mankind has sought to escape death. The amount of time and energy and money that goes into trying to extend a life and escaping death is extraordinary, isn't it? But none of it works because we all die. 
There is no rhyme or reason for who dies young or who dies old. Everyone's, everyone's like going, what happened to Yul Gibbons? I thought he was like the healthy guy. What happens to Bob, the guy from, uh, from you know, the biggest loser, who he's the one that has the heart attack? All those biggest losers on his show, but he's the one that gets the heart attack. What's up with that? I thought he was taking care of himself. I thought he was the one that should have been healthy and lived long. But there's no rhyme or reason to that. There's no guarantee. There's nothing we can do to prevent death from coming on. Now, maybe we can treat ourselves a little bit better and avoid some diseases. But death will come knocking, and when it does, we cannot avoid it. All die. And for most people, death is a penalty that none of us want to pay. We'll do anything to avoid it. The writings about, about avoiding death, fountains of youth and things like that, go back thousands and thousands of years, even before the time of Christ, hundreds of years before that. But here in our history in the United States, in the, in the colonies, Ponce de Leon, the Spanish explorer, 1513, he came wandering through Florida looking for the fountains of life with the restore youthfulness to the body. And obviously, there are millions of elderly people in Florida still looking for it. And some of them are driving like they found it. And they're trying to help you go there. But they haven't. They haven't found it. And I will die, and so will you. Death is the enemies, it's Lucifer's, it's Satan's great, great ploy. He tricked and lied to Eve to bring her under the penalty of death. And now all mankind suffers under that penalty. And all mankind would attempt to escape it if they could. But mankind can't, and God knew that. Much of the fear of death of what comes, is, is what comes after death. There are many accounts of men and women who, as they approach death, they become terrified because they've never, ever explored or tried to deal with what happens when they close their eyes that final time and what happens on the other side of that. And so they are terrified of dying. And rightly so, whether they understand it or not, rightly so, if one has not placed their faith and their trust in Christ. Because the result of man's sin brought punishment. And as we've said, that punishment is separation from God for all eternity. Now, that's pretty difficult for us to wrap our head around what eternity is, but it just means forever. Like, forever. There's no off-ramp out of eternity. There's only on-ramps to it. And once you are in eternity, you're on that road, and there is no way off of it. It is forever. And that place where eternity takes those who are separated from God, it's that place that people don't believe in anymore. It's that place called hell. The Bible actually gives very few particulars, very little details about hell. We know that it was originally intended for demonic spiritual beings, not people. Matthew 25 speaks to that. And the experience of being in hell is compared to being burned or burning. Mark 9, 43 and Mark 9, 48 speak of that. Matthew 18, 9 speaks of that. Luke 16, 24 speaks of burning in hell. And at the same time, hell is compared to darkness. Matthew twenty two thirteen, 13 
and it's associated with intense grief in Matthew 8, 12, and great, great horror in Mark 9. Now, if that's all we knew about where we were going to spend all of eternity, it's not good. It's darkness. It's being related to as burning. It is intense grief, and it is horror. In short, the Bible just tells us what it, being in hell is like. It doesn't explicitly say what it is or exactly how it functions, but it makes enough clear that hell is real and eternal, and it should be avoided at all costs. Sin introduced death, and death is the doorway to eternity, and eternity has two options. Total separation from God for eternity. Total separation from God for eternity. Now, so what's so bad about that? I don't really like him. Well, it doesn't really matter whether you like him or not because the facts remain what you think about them or how you feel about them. For he is all that there is that is good. He is all that there is that is light. He is all that there is that is is, is joy. In him is absolute goodness. And so you think, so I won't be around him. Well, what's the alternative? If he is absolute goodness and you're separated from absolute goodness, then the alternative is absolute horror. The eternity, the alternative is absolute badness. And that word is not even appropriate enough to depict what separation from God is like. Punishment, that eternity in hell separated from God is for those who choose not to trust Christ's payment for their sins. The other option is heaven. Eternity in God's presence. Eternity with no sorrow, no suffering, no pain, no death, no decay. And on Easter Sunday, we'll be talking about why the resurrection was necessary and what it means to all mankind. But this morning, I want to close this service without speaking very directly to some of us. Some of us in this room today have not believed Christ's death as your payment for sin. That you would think that that's what you need for yourself. And yet it's true. It is. There might be many reasons why you don't think you need it. But I want to implore you today to consider that Scripture says, and what I'm presenting today and how that impacts your life and your eternity. And I'm just going to pause right here and say, do you notice that that horn didn't start talking until I started talking about the gospel of Jesus? <laughs> and I'm going to tell you, that tells me that there are people in this room who need to trust Christ today. But right now they're thinking about that horn. Bring it back right here. Amen. Bring it back right here. Jesus died for you so that you don't have to suffer eternal separation from God. His blood shed on the cross was the blood payment that is made for the sins of all mankind. If you've never chosen to believe that for yourself, the only option for you when your eyes close is the option of eternal separation, eternal punishment away from a God. 
Today, I implore you that if you have never, ever considered the payment of sin for yourself, that you would do that today. That you would consider that this simple decision to believe that Christ died for your sins is the decision that determines your entire eternity. The way you do that is you just simply, in your own words, it was just exactly what Nate said a few moments ago. In your own words, you tell God that you don't understand all this very well, but you know you need him. And I'm going to pause for just a moment. And if you're here in this room and you've trusted Christ, then I'm praying that you'll pray. For anyone in this room who hasn't, that you'll pray that they can block out that horn. That you'll pray that the Spirit of God is alive and well and working in this room today. So I'm pausing just for a moment. That if you need to speak to God, you need to deal with Him and talk to Him about your great need for a Savior, you'll do that in this moment right now as we pause. Lord, this morning we count you as always being at work, even when we don't understand it, even when we can't see it, even when we can't explain it, but we believe that you are. And this morning, these things we've talked about, there is no one in this room, regardless of the books that have been written out there, there's no one in this room or in anywhere that's ever been to hell and came back again to talk about it. But your word has told us all that we need, and that's that punishment for our sins, separation from God, is a dark, horrible, painful, sorrowful existence for all eternity. And that is countered by being in eternity in your presence and in your fullness of your goodness. This morning, I pray that if there was anyone here who's never trusted Christ as their Savior, believed in Him, that, that He died for their sin, that they would do that today. And Father, as we march towards two weeks from now, when we've set aside this day to observe your resurrection, that in these two weeks, you'll be working in our heart to help us fully embrace the significance of that event. And it's in your name we pray.